This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Science and Technology and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Francis, a host of the channel. Today, we have Cheryl Vint on the show, professor of media and cultural studies and of English at the University of California, Riverside, and an editor of the journal Science Fiction Studies and the book series Science and Popular Culture. We'll be talking about one of her new books, part of the MIT Essential Knowledge Series called Science Fiction. Cheryl, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Cheryl, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and uh, how you got into writing about and editing works about uh, SF. Sure, and thank you. Thanks for your interest in the book. Um, So I started working on science fiction when I was in graduate school. And in fact, I wasn't really um, a fan of science fiction beforehand. A lot of people in academia who work on science fiction, it's because they loved it as a child. But for me, it was because when I was in graduate school, and this was in the 1990s, I took this course called Feminist Theories of the Body, which really blew my mind. It was like the most interesting course I'd ever taken. It got me to ask all these philosophical questions about mind-body relationship and about gender and and all these really interesting philosophical ideas. And so I totally changed all my plans for what I wanted to write my PhD about and basically wanted to do a theory-centric PhD. And my advisor said, you know, this is the English department. You sort of need some books to write about. And then it turned out that the books that were asking the questions I was really interested in were science fiction books. So that's how I got started writing about and thinking about science fiction. Awesome. Um, And so did you immediately start working in science fiction or? I did. I mean, I was still a graduate student at the time. So um, I was, I, I don't know how you want to talk about working. I mean, I had to do work in whatever courses I was taking, but I entirely changed my um, PhD plans to be able to write about embodiment. And then the work that was my dissertation became the first book I published eventually many years later, as is typically the case, which was called Bodies of Tomorrow. And um, at the time, the Human Genome Mapping Project was also going on in, in the 90s. And so 
I got really, really interested in that. And I read a lot of science fiction that had to do with genetic modifications of the body and what that meant for sort of who counts as human and questions of post-humanism. And so that's where I also developed a really strong interest in kind of science and how um, science and technology themselves are changing daily life and and seeing science fiction as a genre that reflects on those kinds of changes. So, um, and then basically everything I've done since then has always been sort of opening a new chapter and something I discover as I'm finishing one book, I want to pursue it as I continue on to the next one. Amazing. So with this book specifically, what was, um, what was the process like for coming up with the idea for the book and writing it? So this book, MIT actually approached me and said that they were interested in um, a book on science fiction for their Essential Knowledge series. And I was really excited by that. I was really happy to to put in a proposal, which then they, they approved the proposal and I was able to write the book. And one of the reasons I was so happy that they approached me is because I do really think of science fiction as a kind of popular space of theorizing about questions of social change, about... Um, these philosophical issues about sort of gender identity or what it means to be human, those kinds of questions. And also as a place where the way that um, new technologies are sort of reorganizing daily life and we reflect on what that means for us as a society. And so it was really exciting to me that MIT was interested in adding science fiction to the sort of um, series of topics they were considering sort of essential knowledge for people to think about in terms of living in the world today. And then when I was developing the proposal for the book after they asked me if I would work on science fiction, uh, instead of organizing it as like a history of science fiction or even organizing it as a book that talks about um, every single sort of important um, person writing science fiction today, because that's that's just so huge in scope. So the, so I'm well aware there's lots of like great writers that I just wasn't able to get to in this book. So the sort of organizational structure I came up with was really thinking about what are the urgent topics today where science fiction touches on these topics. And then I organized sort of each chapter around something where I thought that there is a sort of urgent question that people are thinking about socially and academically and um, sort of outlined the parameters of that question and showed ways that science fiction works are contributing to thinking through these problems. So I have chapters on like biotechnology and chapters on climate change and chapters on sort of the legacies of colonialism and and thinking about decolonizing. Probably my most uh, sort of pushing the boundaries chapter is the one on economics, but I think that too has really important intersections with science and technology and futurity, which are topics that matter to science fiction. Awesome. So, so yeah, so in the introduction, you make it clear, like as you were saying, that the book isn't really interested in defining the borders of the genre, or it's not trying to pinpoint too rigidly, too rigidly what science fiction is, but rather you're trying to get into what science fiction does. And by the way, you're saying in the book you write SF rather than science fiction. Um, why, first of all, why, why do you call it SF rather than science fiction? So, I mean, SSF is a common abbreviation for science fiction in academic circles. I don't know why we abbreviate rather than write out the whole world word other than we often have, I guess, word limits for things we're writing. So maybe we're like desperate to save on words. 
But for me personally, I also like using SF because uh, the acronym can mean science fiction, but it can also mean speculative fiction. And I'm really sort of, I've lost interest in these sort of uh, genre boundary policing conversations that were all the rage for a while. And you have like really prominent people like say, Margaret Atwood saying like, I don't write science fiction, I write speculative fiction. And then she writes a whole book, which is this really idiosyncratic um, definition of why she thinks the two are separate, but you can find many other definitions where the terms would be used differently than she uses them. And so I wanted really the inclusive acronym so that if people prefer to call it speculative fiction, they can. Um, MIT chose to call it science fiction. And I mean, for me, because I am quite interested in science and technology and the ways that they have an impact on everyday life, um, I tend to translate it as science fiction myself. But part of the history of um, people wanting to call it speculative fiction instead is, I think, related to a rather narrow definition of what counts as science that has was dominant in kind of European modernity. And it's a sort of enlightenment-based positivist understanding of science, which excluded a lot of knowledge of non-Western peoples from counting as science. And so I think if you call it science fiction and what you have in mind is an overly narrow idea of what kind of knowledge and practice counts as science, then you end up excluding a lot of work done by women. You end up excluding a lot of work done by people of color. You end up excluding a lot of work that's written outside the West. And I'm not interested in those exclusions, which is why I like the sort of um, ambivalence of SF so that if people prefer to call it speculative fiction, it's clear that all those other things are included in what I'm thinking about in terms of the genre. That makes sense. All right. So going forward, we'll call it SF. <laughs> Great. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, so, so you're interested in defining not so much what SF is, as you said, but what it does. What, why is this an important distinction? It, I mean, in part, it's because of what kind of academic commitments I have. And so my academic commitments are really about the effects that popular culture, the effects that cultural texts have on people's understandings, on their ideas, and and then on their behaviors, right? And so I'm less interested in sort of a purity of like, this is a perfect work of science fiction, and it follows in, in the boundaries of whatever definition you want to choose, because there's so many definitions out there. I would probably be hard pressed to tell you precisely what science fiction is in any case. But the, what I'm really interested in is that it you know, as a genre, um, across all these different definitions, it does things and those things are what interest me. So it posits that the world could be different and it imagines different kinds of worlds and then sort of logically works through the implications of if something worked differently than what we take for granted. And I think that kind of questioning of given reality is incredibly important politically in terms of being aware of the kind of contingency of our current social relations or the narrowness of some of our ways of understanding notions of um, gender identity, for example, or um, notions of, of what it means to be human. And so I'm interested in the ways science fiction is always pushing those boundaries. And I'm also interested, um, not all science fiction does this, but I myself am interested in science fiction that thinks about futurity, because I think that sort of question of imaginative investment in futurity and um, thinking through 
ways in which the world might be different is really important to um, many of the problems that are facing us in the world today, um, most crucially and sort of urgently climate change. Uh, and so there's ways in which um, mainstream economics, for example, tends to sort of close down the future to a sort of narrow range of possibilities of continuing within our current economic order um, and finding ways to um, you know, mitigate the damage that, say, extractivism is doing. But it can't really imagine a future where sort of um, uh, economics and resource management are just um, organized entirely differently. And science fiction is interested in that kind of futurity and particularly more radical versions of that kind of futurity. So not just sort of the next product launch, um, but an entirely different way of life. And, and that's what I'm interested in as well. Yeah, so as you as you go on and you talk about this futurity, you give an impression that science fiction is um, is very responsive to changes in science and technology, but also involved in the process of um, producing new science and technology and priming us for new occasions and new innovations in science and technology. And the first instance you talk about this is in um speculative design i think so can you describe the dialectic relationship between science fiction and some um scientific or technological innovations we've seen sure um i'm not, I'm not sure that I, would, I mean it is a, a dialectic relationship in the sense that um there's a certain kind of imaginary around technology and what technology might do and i think that influences design um and particularly i think it, it influences people to become interested in um being involved in technological innovation but the reason i'm being kind of hesitant in answering this question is there's also sort of um among some science fiction fans there's a great love of saying like science fiction invented television or science fiction invented satellites or any sort of um technological innovation that there is a precursor image of something that that does that kind of role so there's like very early like televisual um uh, you know the sort of root words of that um projection at a distance um kind of technologies and then people are like yes science fiction invented television but it's not as if like there were like detailed specs of like you know uh uh how exactly that technology is going to work in science fiction so it's not so much that science fiction like invents things and then other people just have to come along and build them. Like that's a very minor step in the process. Uh, although that's a story people like to tell because there are things that are imagined in SF before they appear in the material world. But I think where that relationship um, is important is that there is a sort of vision. Um, and I think especially like IT, social media, virtual worlds is a is an example that um, people can think through quite accessibly. And especially because there are some kind of direct connections where like Neil Stevenson's work was read by the people who were working on Second Life, which I know is a very old technology now, but it was very cutting edge at the time. And so there's a sense that the, the fiction like embodies a vision of what you're seeking to achieve but not so much that it actually sort of um, is the roadmap to how you're going to get there. But the reason that I think that's important is because um, 
whatever kind of social or cultural assumptions are built into the fiction that sort of inspires what it is you're looking to achieve, the people that they sort of imagine as part of that world, but perhaps more importantly, the people that maybe aren't imagined as part of that world, that shapes how the technology is being, like the uses people are imagining for the technology as they're designing it. And so that's where we sometimes end up with technologies that it's not that that people had poor intentions when they were designing them, but they, you know, thought from their own experience and their own experience includes the sort of vision and fiction they read. And maybe they don't think through the consequences of who was not imagined in that and how some technologies can end up being um enacting exclusion as well as offering new sort of um, capacities for inclusion for those who are the users of that technology. And so that's sort of one part of the piece. But I think like once we're, um, once we're in a world that's being really changed by technology, so, um, you know, social media apps and sort of um, surveillance capitalism and viral advertising and the ways every technology we own now is like tracking us and mapping our data points and developing little pictures of, of uh, who we are and, you know, potentially shifting how credit scoring is going to work based on your social media presence and things like that. Certainly science fiction imagined that we would have ways of living in virtual spaces and interacting there, but it didn't imagine all this like surveillance capitalist stuff um, in advance of these technologies appearing. But now that these technologies have appeared, there's lots of science fiction that's working through the implications of how it was actually implemented. And that's where, um, in many ways, that's where I become more interested because it's less, I want to read science fiction to find out what the cool new invention of the future is going to be. And it's more, I want to read the science fiction that's looking at what's going on right now and thinking through, okay, but if we don't think about how this might be used for repressive purposes or if we don't think about the fact that this um, is going to allow like advertisers greater access to the intimacy of our lives in the case of some of these data point technologies, then there's like a set of questions that maybe the designers aren't asking because their, their purpose is to think about there's a market for this and how is it going to be used on the market. But the science fiction writers are thinking like, and then what does that mean for the people who are using it and for their marriages or for, uh, the work that they will have or will not have in the gig economy, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Totally. And I think that there was one moment in the book, I think it was in the robots, AI and transhumanism chapter where you talk about how our cultural biases are in, are encoded into the technology we're creating where robots and AI are um, more and more, uh, feminized and racialized, depending on uh, or, or which it, which is informed by by the way we think of the labor that that they are supposed to do for us. Um, so so yeah. So how does how does SF play into that entanglement? Like, does can can SF play a role in um, can, can it play a role in trying to avoid those uh, those cultural biases? Does it play a role in priming inventors to make or, or innovators to make specific types of technologies? I mean, I think it does both because it depends on 
um, who's writing the SF and what their sort of uh, intentions are. So I think you can find SF doing the full range of those things. Um, and in, in terms of the questions of sort of robots and AI and the labor they do, here I'm drawing on a lot of um, scholars, um, political theorists, sociologists who are sort of studying real world um, AI technology. But the patterns are really visible in science fiction too, right? So if you look at you know, the long history of AI being imagined in science fiction before we had devices that could talk back to us and things like that, if they're like being helpful and they're sort of like your secretary and they're correlating your data for you or making your appointments or whatever, they tend to have um, feminine voices. And of course, the sort of ship voice from Star Trek is probably the, the most iconic one. But if they're like militarized technologies and they're like taking over the world and controlling your nuclear weapons and possibly going to wipe out humanity because they've decided that we're not efficient or whatever it is they've decided, then they tend to be masculine ones, right? And it's not sort of hard to figure out that that pattern maps to biases that we have around gender and gender identity. And so... It's not exactly like I think Star Trek invented Siri and Alexa and Cortana and all these things, but certainly there is an imaginary out there that um, feminized the voice of the helpful computer. And so that combined with the fact that we're also used to thinking of um, helper sort of roles in a feminized way, all of those things I'm sure informed why, why the default voices of all of these technologies are female voices. And their names tend to be feminized kinds of sounding names, right? And I mean, you can change them to have masculine voices now, but but certainly the default is that they were feminized. And it's so clear these people are aware of science fiction, because if you um, ask Siri like to beam you up, she will have an answer to that, right? Because they, they understand that people already were sort of imaginatively inhabiting that space before these technologies were invented. And that's where I think, you know, much as I love a lot of science fiction and I think it does important um, work of social critique, and I tend to want to write about the, the science fiction that's doing that work of social critique, I think we also have to be aware that it's simultaneously getting us imaginatively used to the idea of having certain kinds of technologies. And I think this is especially um, interesting or the case in terms of um, the ways we want smart homes, right? That that imaginatively it looks great to come home and be like, I like the lights like this and you put on this music and then you put on my favorite, favorite TV show and my TV knows what my favorite TV show is because it's been like watching everything I watch and there's like, there's this sort of imagination of convenience and customization. But what we don't think about is like, we've invited all these surveillance devices into our intimate spaces and we let them listen to us all the time and there's like you know disturbing things that happen sometimes with these technologies listening in that that um shows the degree to which we sort of um because we switch from imagining sort of evil masculine militarized technologies like skynet that are like against humanity and we see these feminized ones as like helpers for for humanity we're unable to sort of um, occupy that imaginative space where we can um, see these as the sort of spy agents that they really are in our homes, right? And and then now there's some science fiction that's helping us to realize precisely that. Like, um, 
you know, uh, that while it's helping us, it's also like directing us. So it's like, you know, routing you in a particular way or giving you coupons to promote a particular brand or hiding certain things in your search results. Um, there's all these ways that, because in fact, you know, we call it AI, but it doesn't really have agency or subjectivity in the way that science fiction has imagined AI, right? It's, it's algorithms that are trained to do certain things for the intentions of their coders. And that's a less romantic way <laughs> to think about these things. And so a different kind of science fiction, like, you know, unpacks that and lets you look at the underlying design rather than the sort of, um, you know, robot best friend helping you kind of imaginary that was there in science fiction before we actually lived among these technologies and saw that the reality was quite different. Mm. It sounds like it must be fertile ground for some femme fatale. um so so yeah so you were just talking a lot about how um how science fiction can be kind of it can be helpful in um in like reconceptualizing different technology um but it can also be harmful I think you said is well, there- I think it's, I don't know if I would say something as strong as harmful, but it can certainly help naturalize our dependence on technologies in ways that that dependence can be harmful, I think. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, would you say that that also, I guess that I feel like that kind of relates to, um, to early science fiction, which um, you mentioned as talking a lot or as focusing a lot about or having as its framework European colonialism. How has European colonialism traditionally played a role in science fiction? So I think in two ways. And one is, um, especially in a lot of early science fiction, a lot of it is about exploring, discovering, um, finding new resources, taking the new resources that you find. And so a lot of it is just a sort of replay of um, the, I guess I could call it the entitlement of a kind of Western colonial imagination to appropriate um, other places, occupy other places, um, that kind of mindset. So it's, I mean, often sort of space adventure, exploration, um, science fiction, it often imagines like the spaces it finds are empty. But of course, there was a way that that colonial ideology also constructed for itself an image of um, lands as empty when in fact there were people on them. They were just made invisible as people to that imaginary or, or made invisible as entitled to the land. And so it kind of replays that fantasy of the sort of entire world, entire galaxy, entire universe there for the sort of um, intrepid explorers and, and often sort of reinforces those kinds of values of colonialism as the same values as like um, scientific exploration, right? So that curiosity, et cetera, become these, these values that are sort of um, both colonial and scientific in a way that's not really um, interrogated. So I think that's that's one way. And even in works um, such as, you know, really famously Wells's The War of the World, that reverses that gaze and says, like, well, you know, what happens if Martians come and occupy London? Like, how do you like it if people come and colonize you? There's still, um, 
you know, a kind of default logic that colonialism is a naturalized way of being, because of course the Martians too are colonizers, right? So there's this imaginary that if you have um, an advanced, um, and I should put advanced in quotation marks, but nobody can see my hands though. Um, but supposedly like a high tech advanced society would also have this kind of colonial mindset. So again, it's naturalizing, it's, it's, it's making as default that kind of European way of being, even when it's trying to, in some ways, also be critical by imagining, um, you know, reversing the the story and imagining the the Londoners as the victims of this colonization. But I think another way that it shows up in a lot of really, really interesting science fiction today is that people um, from places that have been colonized and that have experienced the damage of, of colonization they're writing science fiction from an entirely different frame of reference that enables you to tell that story as one of sort of, um, you know, occupation, destruction, erasure of culture, marginalization with, and so instead of, you know, this sort of intergalactic empire that's imagined as this great interstellar civilization, it's like, what happens if you're at the um, the edges of that and your culture is the one that's considered primitive compared to the central culture? Um, uh, Arkady Martin has a series called the the Texcalon um, Empire that that asks really interesting questions about this history of colonialism from that point of view. So I think there are ways that both um, early science fiction just sort of embodied that um, exploratory appropriative mindset. But more recent science fiction does really, really interesting things with um, challenging that as like a default human way of being as compared to a colonial settler way of being. Totally. So so is there any is there any recent texts that are trying to like you said that there there are some that are from the perspective of traditionally colonized places are those texts that are are trying to put us outside of that framework sometimes put us outside of that framework but i think the ones i was thinking of when i said that more often they're imagining like resistance from within that framework right um um so silvia morano garcia um has some interesting stories about kind of aliens occupying mexico and and ways that that looks different from when sort of American centric writers write stories about aliens occupying the U.S. Or even if we go back to something like um, Tiptree's uh, "The Women Men Don't See," uh, and Tiptree, um, the the author is James Tiptree, but that was a pseudonym for Ellis Sheldon. Um, and there's sort of a really interesting story there about how for a long time her work was assumed. To be that of a male author, obviously, because the name James Tiptree <laughs> conveyed that. And people were writing about the sort of like, you know, masculine style of, of her prose and things like that. And so when her real identity was eventually revealed, um, this was quite the kerfuffle in science fiction. But a story like The the Women Men Don't See, which is precisely, it's not, it's about a kind of patriarchal attitude rather than a colonialist one. But the... Um, women who encounter these alien anthropologists, they would rather go with the aliens to the alien world than stay and be treated as second-class citizens on Earth. So that kind of reversal has, has sort of long been part of science fiction. And I think things like um, Nedia Kurifor's Binti series, this is 
about sort of intergalactic empires and um, and the the relations among different people from different um, worlds or subjectivities or ethnicities within the, that that structure, but written like really really differently than sort of old school space opera and really thinking about those questions of power and difference um, and what it means for one's culture um, to be denigrated within a structure that then you're supposedly like a citizen of this greater empire, um, things like that. Right. So, and then there's also science fiction, maybe maybe more recently, I think it said in the book since um, the human genome, pro- human genome Project, there's been a proliferation of science fiction about um, like reframing the human in contemporary biological sciences, you say. So how does SF deal with um, new biological discovery and innovation and technology? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of science fiction writers, uh, and again, the ones I tend to be interested in, they're, you know, reading things like nature uh, or, you know, reading reading um, reports of ongoing research in science. And so some of the things that I was interested in when um, I was working on my most recent book that was published were like the microbiome and thinking about the human is like, instead of being sort of pure human or however we want to understand that, we're actually made up of all these different kinds of organisms. And I'm also personally really interested in science fiction that's questioning the sort of boundary between humans and other kinds of life. Um, And so there are also science fiction writers who are interested in those questions. And so they're reading the same research and then they're imagining, um, you know, different kinds of worlds where maybe, um, our biological history um, conceptually unfolded differently. So it's not so much that biology itself is different, but um, the sort of Western way science unfolded really emphasized kind of divisions and hierarchies and Linnaean kind of branching charts and things like that. But science fiction by somebody like Sue Burke, for example, has um, these really interesting semiosis um, novels that imagine a planet where the way um, biology unfolded, that actually plants rather than animals became the dominant species. And then sort of logically, again, works through like, well, if plants could think, how might they think differently than humans because they, they have a really different kind of biological relationship to the earth and to how, and, and like locomotion isn't as central, but like underground branching and, and sharing of resources is more essential. So just working through those kinds of questions to really decenter or estrange, estrange is a word that, that comes up frequently in definitions of science fiction, like um, make strange um, our assumptions about how things work by centering something different than what has been centered in our own intellectual histories. Um, and so that's like one interesting example. Nancy Kress has been writing about this kind of um, biological change of the human body uh, really since the human genome started to be mapped. She was writing about this stuff um, from the nineties um, up till today. And again, she's, she's, you know, not so much, um, what am I trying to say? She, the questions she wants to ask are sort of based on the premise that one can change one's biology 
And then she imagines like how and to what end. So one of her really early series um, imagined people that could genetically engineer themselves not to need sleep. And then if you didn't need sleep, you could be more productive than everyone else. And then you could be like smarter and accumulate more and like sort of work through that, what that means. Her more recent work is imagining um, sort of genetic engineering so we could survive climate change. And again, it's about like thinking through that, um, not so much like she's proposing we actually genetically engineer ourselves to survive climate change, but in imagining a future where that happens or has to happen, it's reminding us we aren't these kind of uh, isolated beings that end at our skin and can just be ourselves in any environment, but in fact, we're deeply dependent on other species and an ecosystem and a climate. And if all of that changes, then the human cannot continue as it once was. So these are less sort of proposals to like engineer ourselves into something else and more kind of provocations to realize that, that we actually are more integrated with other life than, than we realize in the ways that our sort of political and philosophical frameworks might suggest. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. In your chapter called Environment, Climate Change, and the Anthropocene, you talk about how that even before the idea of climate change, SF was toying with the idea of the world as existing before humans and potentially after them too. So is one of the tools that SF offers, um, or maybe, maybe its most valuable tool even, the decentering of the dominant um, narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think that that to me, again, it's always like what science fiction you choose. But but to me, this is why I'm attracted to science fiction. This is why I think science fiction is a space of sort of political thinking because it's always about like, what if we change this or imagine this or intensify this. Uh, and in terms of climate change, I mean, I think in that case, one of the things that um, is really valuable about SF as a tool for culturally thinking through climate change is it tells stories on a scale that's really different from sort of realist fiction, right? Because usually the scale of a story would be the kind of human lifetime or, you know, it might be a family saga. So it might be a few generations of a human lifetime. But to really think about something like climate change, you need to think on a much vaster scale, both temporally and globally, right? And so there's a certain way that its interest in sort of world building and infrastructures over the kind of intimacy of familial relations 
um, means science fiction is able to think about things like climate change in a way that maybe realist fiction struggles to because climate change is something we're sort of always all experiencing and always not registering that we're experiencing and because it's temporal pace is just slow enough that it's hard for it to be perceptible to us in in our daily lives. Now that might change in the next 20 or so years and it might sort of dramatically become perceptible at a human life scale. And in fact, we might say it already is in the sense of like all these extreme weather events that, you know, weren't a common experience 20 years ago and are a common experience now are are a register of climate change. But it's not um, because there's still people who would deny the reality of climate change. I guess it's not yet a generalized enough acceptance of that as um, uh, because the scale is still slightly um, off what some people are willing to accept, accept. Right. You gave a really great example in the book about um, an SF, an SF book where there was a, a, I think it was called the slow bomb drop, maybe. Yeah, yeah. About how people, as the as the bomb is dropping on Earth, people want to extract energy from it, which makes it drop even even faster. Yes, and I mean the recent um, "Don't Look Up" film, which is like like satirical and funny, and like sort of seems absurd but yet is actually at the same time describing precisely what we're doing, right? So, I mean, I think that's one of the spaces where you can see how the tools of science fiction are really important to being able to tell different kinds of stories. Because on the one hand, that film, like, seems really crazy, right? But, or it does to me, anyways. But then its description of, you know, this disaster is heading towards us. We're talking about it, but not doing anything about it. And then when we finally come up with a plan to do something about it, our first instinct is to think, how can we make money out of this plan? Like that seems like very realistic to me, despite the absurdity that that comes out in that film. And so I think that's a really good example of how the tools of science fiction let you frame stories differently to draw attention to things that are, that are real. Um, but you need the kind of um, estrangement of science fiction to make them visible to people. Would you say that that SF is, um, is well, in one of your chapters, you talk about the utopian tradition. Do you, does it feel like SF is becoming more dystopian now as with climate change and the like? No, I don't think I'd say that because... Um, uh, for one thing, I would call dystopia part of the utopian tradition in the sense that that dystopias are about warnings, right? They're about trying to get people to change their behavior to avoid these these dark futures. And certainly, it's you know, throughout the 20th century into the 21st, there's been more dystopian texts than utopian ones. That, but the reason I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's more now with climate change is that there's always been a catastrophe that science fiction is narrating, right? So, I mean, dystopia really um, was incredibly dominant in the immediate post-war period. Um, all the futures that seemed imaginable were futures of, like, post-nuclear war, wasteland, apocalypse. Um, so the same kind of thing that, that there was a sort of looming existential threat um, that... Um, seemed impossible to imagine a future that wasn't that threat. 
And I think the same thing is going on now with the the increasing turn to climate change narratives, even among either um, non sort of non SF authors who might write one SF novel now, it'll tend to be about climate change, I think. I guess the big difference is nuclear war was something we could avert by just like, don't use the nuclear weapons. Um, whereas climate change is not something that we can avert like, like in sort of one action. And in fact, climate change, um, it goes back to your earlier question about like rethinking the human as entangled with ecosystems, dependent on other species, all these kinds of things. I mean, climate change has already so changed these um, ecosystems that it's even if humans sort of magically started living more sustainably, um, which I find it hard to, to sort of imagine how globally that could take place in any case, um, there's still ways in which we've depleted the soil so much we can't sort of grow food in some areas where where we can't all go back to sort of an agrarian lifestyle. And there's bee colony collapse, which maybe means pollination is something that is going to be like, what are we going to do with robots in the future? Like, I don't know, but it's not as easy a fix as like, don't use nuclear weapons. <laughs> right. Um, so you also talk about, I think your last chapter was economics and financialization or your last chapter before the conclusion. Um, so the economy and SF have an easy connection point, which is that they're both mythology. They're both fiction. <laughs> do you, do you um, notice any, well, well you talk about Bitcoin as a, um, as a, as an easy connection point between the two. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure, because I'm not sure a lot of your listeners are going to agree that both the economy and science fiction are mythologies. So maybe that needs a little bit of unpacking. Um, but okay, so I'll start with Bitcoin. I think a couple of reasons why Bitcoin is an easy point of connection between the two. Um, one is it's a technology, right? So writing about Bitcoin and how Bitcoin maybe is going to disrupt economics or change or things like that is the same as sort of any other technology that has both an imaginative dimension as well as a material presence, right? Um, and then also there's like a sort of um, a material, I guess I could call it history, um, uh, which is outlined in a really excellent book called Digital Cash by Finn Brenton, which I would highly recommend. So it's a history of sort of um, experiments with cryptocurrencies and all the various other imaginary moments uh, where people envisioned this and tried to make it happen before Bitcoin actually had some success. And then, of course, there's also alternative um, cryptocurrencies to Bitcoin right now. And so when he outlines this history, a lot of the players are also um, the same people that are involved in science fiction, the same people that are involved in early sort of transhumanism. And so there's a sort of imaginary that's sort of cohering around um, uh, technology and futurity and and um, ways that people are trying to bring these imaginaries into material life, um, That these imaginaries that have their roots in science fiction visions. So that's part of the sort of piece there. And of course, there's a lot of utopianism that's attached to both Bitcoin and blockchain more generally about how it can like free us from banks or allow a different kind of um, economic freedom that, that um, 
is not paying these middlemen kind of financial managers so much. And so there's a, there's a whole sort of um, imaginary around governance that's also tied up in, in blockchain and cryptocurrency, which to me seems very much like um, science fiction. And I don't say that to be dismissive um, because I take science fiction really seriously, right? I take seriously that our imaginative investment in things and the stories we tell, which produce a kind of affective investment in them, that these things actually do shape the world. They shape the choices that we make and they shape um, how we choose to live and invest our time and what technologies we adopt or don't adopt or what we do with them when we adopt them. So I do take that all very seriously. But the other thing I'm trying to get at in that chapter um, about the sort of the economy is is a mythology. Um, again, I don't mean there's not a real economy that has very serious consequences for people. In fact, it's these very serious consequences is why I'm so interested in helping us sort of um, unpack the layers by which the economy is mythologized and based on certain kinds of beliefs. Um, and so a couple of things I'm really interested in right now that are related to that. One is um, venture capital funding. Um, and even like like that they are always looking for unicorns um, shows that they too understand there's a kind of mythological um, pull to this. Um, and so venture capital funding basically um, materializes capital based on stories is what I would say. And I mean, ultimately, there's there's also people trying to build the things they're telling stories about, but they get their VC funding through the stories, right? Through the vision, um, through getting people to believe in this thing that they, they you know, um, uh, conjure up out of their narratives. And some of them do materialize into things and some of them don't. And so I'm really uh, interested in those, those stories right now. Um, and, um, and so is Hollywood, it seems, because now there's these quite, there's like the WeWork story is out there in both a documentary and a narrative TV show. The Theranos story is out there in a television story. And I believe there's also a movie in the works. Um, and then the Uber story has its own TV show now too. And I think the fact that they, we do have these, um, you know, TV dramas about things that happened like a decade ago, less in some cases, really shows that there is this like um, narrative component to how that part of the disruption um, VC funded economy is working. And it's working very much like how science fiction works, in my opinion. Interesting. You were talking also about blockchain. How does that relate with that? So, I mean, blockchain is the, uh, and I, I should preface this by saying I'm certainly not an expert on blockchain. I'm still learning about blockchain. So for your listeners who are experts on blockchain, they can email me and help me out to refine my understanding of blockchain. But it's the technology underlying the sort of verification of cryptocurrencies. But it doesn't have to be used only for cryptocurrencies, right? And so there is interesting work going on in sort of like blockchain and contract law um, or uh, blockchain and voting. And so there's, um, again, this sort of utopian imaginary that's attached to this technology that has a kind of open ledger. And so you can verify um, the, the transactions. Um, uh, 
is seen as this sort of solution to a what's perceived to be a problem of lack of transparency and of a lot of things going on in governance. And so there's these imaginaries around how if we could get more like blockchain voting mechanisms that democracy would work better or blockchain contracts could um, ensure a sort of greater efficiency. There'd be various, you know, people couldn't renege on their promises because things would be built into how the blockchain would execute them. Um, uh, And there's also a critique. There's an economic scholar called Katharina Pistor, who has a... um, analysis of blockchain contracts, that the way that the sort of um, uh, some of these automations actually like sort of remove human decision making it, at spaces where maybe you want human decision making to still have a role. And so I think there's a relationship there between that and sort of um, uh, autonomous learning system AIs um, who, that has a lot of applications in the military, for example. And there, too, it's the question of like, you know, these systems can make, can sort data and make decisions faster than humans. And so perhaps like better because they don't have bias like humans or so it is claimed. Um, But on the other hand, they also don't have discernment and they can't sort of recognize that situations might not be as coded for um, and they don't have flexibility. And so there's a sort of um, other side to the story that the imaginative investment in sort of transparency leaves out. Um, And so Again, I anticipate we'll see more science fictions. The more these things start having an impact on daily life, the more I expect we'll see science fiction stories and novels that think through the sort of um, the other side of the story. That's not the sort of VC promise of why this is going to change the world and everything will be better, right? Totally. Um, okay, so we, I, I, we are getting towards where I feel like I've been taking up too much of your time. Um, I just have a couple more questions before we go. One of which is, why, why do you think that SF is oftentimes relegated to the sidelines? I forgot who it was in, in your book, but you quoted him as saying, they don't, the, science fiction doesn't get a place in, in the manor house. It's relegated to the, de- to the guest house outside uh, so that's Amitav Ghosh says that um and I mean there's a long history of why part of it has to do with um the kind of origins of at least sort of um western anglo science fiction in pulp magazines and so it sort of came out of a storytelling space that was designed to be disposable like comic books right but then um, comic books might have designed to be might have been designed to be disposable, but the MCU is now shaping possibilities for everyone who wants to make a movie about anything because of its economic dominance. So it turns out these things were less disposable than than imagined. Um, and so there's that that kind of long history. There is a lot of science fiction that is terrible and deserves to be there. So it's not that I'm saying anytime anybody wants to tell a story that has like an alien or a robot in it, it's like a masterwork. Um, that's not the case at all, but I think there's a lingering sense that because a lot of that was this pulp, disposable, colonial space adventure stuff, that that's what people imagine when they hear science fiction. And to me, this is why people that are quote unquote mainstream authors, such as Margaret Atwood, when they write stories, which are very clearly science fiction stories about like the future and about genetic engineering and about climate change, they have to say like, oh, but this is not really science fiction because it has like a theme. Um, 
because they're imagining that the, the only this disposable kind of um, techno adventure stuff is science fiction, which has never been the case. Um, but it was sort of how um, people came to understand the term, I think, largely through media rather than through the print tradition in many ways. So I think that's part of it. And what do you hope to see from SF going forward? I mean, honestly, more of the same of what the best science fiction has always done, right? Um, uh, More stories that are always looking at how it is that the innovations in science and technology open up new questions for us about how we want to live, how we want to organize our lives. Um, And again, I think the best science fiction is the one that's, that's always asking the questions about who is left out, who is excluded, who is marginalized, um, whose perspectives don't we hear from in the mainstream. And so science fiction is a space to to enable those voices to have a say. Amazing. And um, what is next for you going forward? So I just published another book, which is called Biopolitical Futures in 21st Century Speculative Fiction. And it's really about biotechnology and the commodification of bio, biology through biotechnology. And so that grew out of the, um, the, the work I was doing in my previous book, which had to do with the human-animal boundary. So that I'm really interested in these questions of sort of life itself becoming owned in many ways, like patents on genes or biological organisms that are um, genetically modified and designed to work like machines or Terminator Seeds and Monsanto and all those kinds of questions. So so that's the book that I've just finished and it came out at the end of last year. And then I have two different projects that I'm working on right now. Um, one is this economics and science fiction project. So I'm trying to think about venture capital funding and um, you know derivatives and various kinds of financialized speculative instruments um, and sort of the way um, a debt-funded um, kind of economy is used to like generate these bubbles, like the housing bubble that crashed. So I'm, so I'm interested in thinking through the sort of speculative dimensions of that. And then the other project I'm working on is um, also about a kind of like mainstreaming or real-worlding of this speculative imaginary, and it has to do with the the rise of the alt-right and especially like alt-right conspiracy discourse. And so again, just like I think um, venture capitalist funding is using kind of science fiction techniques in this real world setting. I think like crazy alt-right discourse, like QAnon is the most prominent example, but sadly not the only example is also using kind of science fiction storytelling um, to create, um, basically like cosplay communities in my view they're cosplay communities but yet having these like really serious political consequences and so it's this kind of mainstreaming or generalizing of a kind of science fiction tendency that I'm trying to to theorize or work through those all sound amazing and I cannot wait to read all of them <laughs> thank you Um, Well, I think we are out of time. Thank you so much, Professor, for being on the show. This was awesome. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for the conversation. (laughs) 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.